It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome, welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams, and I am happy that you actually made it to class this morning. Today, this Sunday morning, is World Homeless Day. And there are a number of organizations marking this day by talking about releasing reports and having conversations with people who have experienced homelessness. And homelessness, as we will learn throughout today's show, is not just one view that you have of the millions of people who are experiencing homelessness. You ask someone on an average day, they may point to or have a story about someone they see in the street, someone experiencing street homelessness. And there are all sorts of connotations added to who we view as homeless. But as you'll hear throughout the conversation this morning, there are many different categories and many different reasons why people are experiencing homelessness. But what we do know for a fact is that we have the capacity to actually address the needs of people who are experiencing this, and we just choose not to. At least that's my editorial comment. But to begin the conversation, I wanted to start and lay the groundwork, not with policy experts, not with people sitting on high, talking down low, or thinking about numbers and statistics. I wanted to start with someone who has or who is experiencing homelessness or has for various periods. And rather than talking from a policy perspective or esoteric perspective. So joining us for the show for the very first time, Chase Archer Evans. He's the creator of the Intentional Homeless Association, and he has experienced homelessness or been without a home since the age of 18 and created this organization to help people understand the barriers that people who experience homelessness face and give voice to those who are going through various ways or various categories in terms of how people experience homelessness. So joining us for the first time is Chase Archer Evans. Chase, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. I appreciate you accepting the invitation through the power of social media. Uh, I was talking to folks on social media about putting the show together and you chimed in and I was like, well, come on. And what's interesting is that the person that you chimed in that I was inviting did not come, but you did. So I appreciate you accepting the invitation and joining us. And so to get to learn a little bit more about you, who is going to have this conversation with us, I'm going to start where I start with all guests by you sharing the story of your first civic action. You're awesome. Just going to throw that out there. Um, (laughs) My first... My first civic action was probably uh, pushing somebody's car off this off of the road, um, because almost every vehicle I've ever owned is a piece of crap. So I sit on the side of the road a lot. Um, but uh, truly, my my first real community engagement, uh, where I reached out to the community in a in a big way, um, I made a smile sign uh, just on a piece of cardboard, 
and it said smile it's contagious with two uh big smiley faces on it and i stood on the side of the road and i made people smile as they drive past and that was that was eight years ago and i, I continue to do that to this day it's it's actually a lot of fun Oh, I that that's amazing. I would I would like to see signs and <laughs> things like that in our community on a on a regular basis. But making signs, yes, making signs in your first civic action, making people smile. I love that in terms of and as you talked about it as reaching out to the community and engaging community because community engagement shouldn't just be about what you want people to do for your cause, but actually engaging and beginning conversations and breaking ice with community. So I appreciate that story very much. So Chase, you know, in the conversation that you had with June and obviously the reason why I wanted to have you to set the stage for us for this conversation on World Homeless Day as a way to educate folks about those who are experiencing homelessness. And you created the Intentional Homeless Association for that purpose. So talk a bit about why you started the organization and what the organization does. Why I started the organization was um, because I didn't feel homeless. I, I live in a motorhome. Uh, I travel, I tried to travel a lot, but I ran into so many problems because that wasn't an accepted way to live that I realized I was facing all the same problems that homeless people did. Society looked at me like I was homeless and homeless people looked at me like I wasn't homeless. So I got this very awkward view of society and, and the rules that we have in place. And, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't get ID because I didn't have an address and I couldn't get an address because I didn't have ID and I started racking up fines and I, I realized that I needed to get a hold of my local repre representation to try to solve this problem. And they said, what's your name? What's your phone number and what's your address? And I said, well, here's my name, here's my phone number, but I don't have an address to give you because I'm, I'm homeless. And they said, well, we can't make time for you because we like to make time for our constituents first without an address to prove that you're a constituent, we can't make time for you. And it, it blew my mind because not having that address was was the hang up, like that outlined it for me and started to get involved with um, local organizations, with national organizations, started calling government agencies, just trying to figure out what, what the problem is. And problem is that address. And um, I realized that a lot of that converse, those conversations I was having wasn't wasn't doing anything. And I started the organization to try to have that conversation. And to be completely honest, we don't, we don't do much of anything beyond talk. I mean, it's, there's a lot of people that want to support the organization, but I just, I don't know what we can do beyond have those conversations. And that's, I mean, that's, that's pretty much all we do is, is talk. <laughs> well, I appreciate that because, you know, that's shedding light on something, you know, as I said in the beginning, a lot of people have preconceived notions of who people are who are experiencing homelessness, right? And that there's this one category, people who are on the street, right? And there are many different, there are people who are couch surfing, they don't have a home of their own, meaning a lease in their name, you know, and things like that. So they are with family, they are 
they are with family or they are with friends and, you know, just finding a place to lay their head or to store their stuff wherever they can. What we all recognize, again, is street homeless, people who are walking down the street and visibly look homeless rather than, as we do know, that large percentage of people who are homeless are children who are, you know, they have parents, <laughs> the parents that are looking out for them, but their parents and their families overall do not have the resources to have an address of their own. You know, but Chase, you're learning more about you and the conversations that the organization is having opened my eyes into another category, right? Those who are as your organization says, intentionally homeless and choosing to live their life, probably like early people in general live their lives, <laughs> which is a nomadic lifestyle, um, living whether it be in an RV, a car, or things of that nature, and do not have what we traditionally have determined to be a home with a physical address. And if people make that choice, which is different from people who want to seek a, you know, another way. But if people make that choice, it seems to me that we should not have additional barriers or policies in place that prevent people from doing that. And so you may think that your organization doesn't do anything but talk, but talking and coming together and, or, and, and identifying other people who are experiencing the same thing across different communities and then reaching out and engaging with other people produces action. And that action could be something simple, you know, as well in our state, what can we do to assist people to get the documentation that they need so that they can access other services? And your talk, Chase, with those of you who are talking and having that conversation and be able to open people's eyes like you did mine and talk about how we can assist in that, that is that is the beginning of <laughs> like how civic action actually works. So, you know, I, I love the way you said that, but there's a, there's an element to being in, intentionally homeless. That's not just about choosing it. Cause of course, when you're, when your options are limited, that's a, that's a, a great option is to not choose, which is a choice in itself. So you mean like uh, a false choice, right? Like it's a, it's a false yeah. choice. Yeah, but when when you have no other option, mm -hmm. that is your option. And and whether you want to think of it as a choice or not, it, it's it's still a choice. And the reason I really stick with this intentional homeless thing is because, or the intentional word, is because if we're not allowed to be intentionally homeless, then we're placing barriers on those who don't want to be there. And if if we're really to help the people that don't want to be there we need to remove their barriers and that starts with first of all allowing them to be there and that's the root of criminalization there's the fact that we require this permanent physical address you know it says that everybody who doesn't have that is now somehow outside of legality i mean you can't get id mm -hmm. you can't get a job without id you can't get identifying documents without id uh, you know, it's this, it's this big catch-22 that they don't really want to address. And, 
you know, the, the question of what can we do, you know, it, it's, it's, it's hard on a community level. There's, there's really nothing you can do besides give somebody an address, but yeah. how do you do that? And how do you do that on a massive scale? And I think the only answer is to just remove the requirement. I mean, if you lose your identification in your cross estate, at least in Texas, you can have them send it to the DMV where you went to go or where you're at. So you go to the, go to the DMV or DPS as they call it, you can have them, you know, you can have them send it to a different place. So why, why aren't we doing that with, with all these other government services? Why can't we say, you know, at the social security office, you bring your identifying documents, bring back those identifying documents and pick up your social security card at the social security office where you went to identify yourself. I mean, and then you can go from there to all these other offices, just bring back your documentation, pick up the document that says, this is who you are and, and, you know, remove that requirement of having them send it to somewhere because I can't possibly send it, get it sent somewhere without having the ID to go get that somewhere. And, you know, once people lose everything, there's no way for them to get it back. And, and that's the problem is the fact that we require everybody to have these, these ducks in a row. And, and, you know, it's, 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 it's almost like, how do you answer the question? What can we do? We have to tell the government to, to remove these clerical barriers just so that people can live their lives. That's the most fundamental thing that we could do to help people across the country. We could help everybody. I mean, from people that are in the street and don't have identification to Americans that want to move across the country, requiring them to have this permanent place to be puts a barrier in their way from, from living their lives. And it's, it's just, it's insane to me that we don't see this requirement as a, a fundamental infringement on our freedom. Chase, okay, I absolutely love this. So what you just described, I think you mentioned who does this now is in Texas, you can have your ID sent to the DMV office, right? And why don't we do the same thing with other government agencies? Sure, on, I'm not so sure on that. <laughs> I, I, that's I okay. We, hear it. I heard like, it said, but I, I can't. I can't. That's I, fine. I, I never had it. But yeah. but what you but what you just offered is a solution, right? In that, you know, I because I, I can already hear the responses. Well, if we don't require an address, how can we verify the person is the person or who they say they are? But if you're saying it, the the materials will be sent to the office in which it was requested, meaning that you have to physically come back to the same office in order to show those same documents to be able to pick it up, it seems to me that that would be a way to verify and to check, right, that that person is the same as. So you can now throw away all of the domestic terrorism threats, all of the, like, you know, international terrorism threats. You can throw all of that away because it's not as if you're sending it to a street corner. You're sending it again to a government entity in which uh, presumably you um, are entering a government building and all of that, the information that comes with it, and then have a space. But then going further, 
as I see the books behind you, which make me think of libraries, right? Where we know that libraries have are also a place where people who are experiencing different forms of homelessness or reentry or different things, where services are provided there as well, right? So how can we use the public services be they libraries, be their government buildings, or all of those other things to be able to support people who need to get those individual services. And, you know, Chase, it's not up to the people, always up to the people who are experiencing the thing to come up with the solution of the thing. Um, what giving voice and saying, this is a problem, this is the barriers that exist for us to be able to live our lives and really enjoy our you know, pursuit of happiness and life and liberty and all that we are supposed to enjoy. And remembering that the constitution doesn't require you to have an address, right? <laughs> you as an individual person. And so how can we make sure that our government services are being given to people as they need it? And for those of you who are in elected office, who are listening to this right now, whether you're in alderman, city council and state legislature, or even in Congress, because I know some of you who listen, right? Here is a problem in addressing some of the bureaucratic or clerical, as Chase mentioned, issues that are barriers to people being able to go where they need to go or get the documentation they need. And it's something that, hey, look, people can take up. So Chase, you know, I want to continue further. You talk about the intentional part and the choice right? In that we can have probably a whole nother show and conversation of people making choices based upon the resources, very limited resources that they may have, right? Making a choice that I'm going to live here because I can't afford to have, you know, X, Y, Z. So the only thing I can do is make do with what is in front of me, right? And, and the resources, what's in, what's in front of me. What are some of you mentioned sort of the bureaucratic and clerical issues in terms of documentation. What are some of the other, I guess, misconceptions or other things, people like me who, you know, uh, want to learn more and want to think through ways to implement laws or policies to be more impactful? What's an, something else that you think might be helpful? That's a broad question. I'm not entirely sure I have the answer to, you know, my brain always goes back to that that requirement of a permanent physical address. I mean, there's, it's I, I like to I like to call it geographic discrimination because that's a little bit more broad. Looking at redlining and gerrymandering, and all these other location-based discrimination practices that hold people down that are in certain areas or or hold people down that that are in certain situations, and you know that requiring that permanent physical address is is really a step. It's the most basic step I can think of to, to solving so many of these issues. And, you know, as, with as much as I try to research, I, I can't call most of what I do research, but, you know, it's, it's difficult for me to figure out ways to outline all of these policies because it all goes back to the same place as that, that address, whether the, the policy is, you know, because your, your address is in a certain area or or whether you don't have an address, it's it all comes back to that location discrimination. You've you've asked quite a big question, and it's not so much that 
you know, there's individual policies to be changed. Because I run into, I run into this a lot. There's a lot of talk about, you know, the community level and what this and this is a state issue because states are the ones that issue identification. But you know, ever since with post law, the post office has policies and laws in place that that require certain things, and some of those are federal law, and then the state just goes off of that. So even though it's a state administered whatever it is. The, the laws are still federal. So on the community level, we have to come together to, to realize that this is an issue and, and bring it to the federal government to say that this is, this is a problem across the entire country. I mean, I've been homeless in several cities. There's, the problems are the same. And, and that's, why, that's why I'm in this fight so much because you know, I may live in a motorhome and I don't feel homeless. Definitely, I definitely qualify as homeless. And, and because of those barriers that I face, I, I, I do a lot of homeless things but you know if we don't if we don't look at this like it's like it's a top-down issue and we don't come together as communities to tell the top that they need to stop putting us in this position then you know everything is going to continue to be overburdened our systems are overburdened our providers are overburdened there's so many people that need help that really don't need help they just need their ability to operate in society again We'll be back with more Sunday Civics. Schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. Chase Archer Evans. I want to call your attention to what I think it's your pinned tweet about there's no mention of driver's license or non-moving or non-traffic related misdemeanors and non-jailable offenses that take away a person's license and can cause, you know, the uh, unintended consequence of people experiencing homelessness. Can you talk a bit more about that? Absolutely. (laughs) Fines keep people poor, especially when your ability to interact economically hangs in the balance of, of paying that fine. You know, if you like in my case, uh, don't have ID because you can't, or, or a license because you can't renew it because you don't have an address, you're going to end up with tickets because, you know, you can't be here, you can't stay there, so you have to move. And as soon as you move, they pull you over and give you a ticket. And, and I know that there are a lot of people that are finding ways around that, using a friend's address or using organizations like, I don't want to name drop, but there, there are ways to, to use an address to, to keep, but when you fall into that trap of, of having a fine that you can't afford, because you're already in a precarious situation, being that you're living in some type of vehicle, if, if you are in a precarious situation, I know some people are pretty well off in their RVs, but you know, fines present a huge issue, and especially when they rack up, because you know how are you supposed to take care of a fine if you couldn't take care of the problem that caused the fine and and all that does is just it just keeps racking up and and the more those barriers are in your way you can't sit them out in jail there's just a monetary value on your ability to move about on the roads and that ends up with you know Sometimes it ends up with warrants being issued. It ends up with impounding vehicles, taking people's only shelter they have away. I've been towed three or four times, and it's been anywhere from 250 to $800 to get my motorhome out. 
and my entire livelihood is in that thing. So I, I mean, I've borrowed money that I still haven't paid back because, you know, that because I needed I needed that, and you know that fine that requirement that that money it placing on a, a supposed crime it all it does is punish poor people and it and it keeps them poor i think that that june says my assistant june says all the time it's expensive being poor and the amount of fines and other things that are put into place that you have to scrape together in order to be able to pay a fine to go a little bit longer or paying late fees or paying other things that sort of rack up. And as you say, can snowball into keeping you in poverty, plunging you into poverty. We always talk about people who are one paycheck away, you know, for poor, but even more than that, if they have a paycheck, you got to have a paycheck in free <laughs> in the first place percent of the US is one paycheck away right so so all of those things that sort of nickel and dime people that people who are wealthy do not have to experience right they're not paying you know the high interest rates they're not paying late fees they're not paying any of those things that will continue to keep them that and that continues to keep them wealthy because they don't have to do any of that. Whereas poor people are sort of bearing the brunt of of those industry industries, whether they be in predatory lending and sort of payday loans and being able to cash a check because you can't afford, you know, banking services because you can't afford the twenty dollar a month fee because that twenty dollars can be used for something else. And you know, there are entire local governments that run on fees, right? Whether they be fees related to the criminal justice system or others. And I, this is not related at all, but just, I remember in being uh, younger and being able and having to track every dime. And I remember getting a different library card in a different library system or something because I owed a fine that was like $40 for a book and I didn't have a $40, but I had this, right? And so you you rack up and sort of just creates an additional stress. And so just think about that magnified, right? You know, I'm going to open another account somewhere that is probably going to cost me more than this but I, I don't have the money to pay for that and do what I need to do. And just all of those things, whether they be school fines and lunch fines and bank fees and you know the fee that your water got turned off and now to turn it back on is a reconnection fee. It was like, well, I have the bill money, but I don't have the reconnection fee, right? So all of those things sort of pile up on top of each other. Well, Chase, I want to thank you so very much for taking an opportunity to talk to us, to shed some light on this issue. And I'm, I know I'm personally going to talk to some folks, not only here in the state of New York, but, you know, in the congressional level about this issue. And I, I just want to encourage you that in terms of you thinking that your organization just talks, but know that your just talking produced people thousands of people who listen to this show to, you know, go back, whether they are elected, whether they are policymakers or others themselves, to think about what they have in place in their institution or how else people can assist people who may be experiencing the same thing. So just talking 
does produce action. And so I want to encourage you that not to think that creating an organization that just talks can't produce anything because coming together and organizing around an issue by just sharing experience and sharing the problems can produce change. I, I appreciate that. And, and I'm sure there are hundreds of thousands of people across the country that, that would appreciate your involvement in the issue. There's one thing that we really didn't touch on and I really sure. want to make it, it's, it's bathrooms and facilities because, hmm. you know, with that criminalization piece comes the expectation that people already have that. And there's, there's so many situations where people don't and can't, and, and it creates uh, what they're calling a health issue. And it's not so much a health issue, it's just the fact that people have nowhere to take care of themselves hygienically. And that is a huge piece that, I guess that answers part of your question from before, is that's a huge piece that we could be taking care of, is providing facilities for people to take care of themselves on a community level. Because that criminalization expects people to already have that. And if everybody's expected to already have that, then where, where do people do it? I mean, it needs to be done. That definitely is. Oh, Chase, thank you so very much for highlighting that. And again, for those of you who are listening, who have power and ability, there is no greater disservice than for you to have the power to actually make change and you sit on your hands. So for those who are in positions to help amplify, and it's part of the reason that I wanted to have Chase on the show to begin with is because, you know, yes, we're going to have the polished conversations of people you think, you know, who are researchers and quote experts in respective fields, but is no greater person to speak on issues than the people who are actually experiencing them and for them to highlight for us things that we are missing, educate us. I love having guests on that educate me about issues, things that I didn't know, I don't experience, and so therefore need to hear from people, need to hear their talk, hear their conversation about what they're experiencing in order for us to produce change. So Chase, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. If housing is a right, then we have the right to not choose it. Okay. Have a good afternoon. How can it be that you love the most unlovable Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm Eljoy Williams, your host, civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist. And today we are discussing, or we are actually marking World Homeless Day by having a conversation about homelessness and multiple conversations about homelessness. We just had a conversation with someone, create an organization to highlight issues that are impacting people who are homeless or who have made the choice to be homeless, false choice that it is. And continuing the conversation, I'm happy to have join us Jacqueline Simone, who's a senior policy analyst for the Coalition for the Homeless. Jacqueline, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, we are having a number of conversations really to highlight some of the 
myths that people may have about homelessness. I talked about earlier, you know, the average person, when you think about who is homeless, they think about a person who is street homeless, you know, walking down a street in their neighborhood with a shopping cart or, or things of that nature. And it's a lot of misconceptions about who people are who are experiencing homelessness. So I wanted you to sort of set the stage for us from a data perspective, from a national perspective, but also here in New York City of when we are talking about people who are experiencing homeless right now, who are we referring to? Yeah, so you're correct that there are so many misconceptions about homelessness. And I think that most people do think of unsheltered people when they hear the term homeless, because that is the most visible part of the homeless population. But in addition to people who are unsheltered, we also have in New York City alone, tens of thousands of people who are homeless and who are in shelters on any given night. So there are about 50,000 New Yorkers in the five boroughs who are in the main shelter system overseen by the city's Department of Homeless Services. There are also many others in shelter systems run by other city agencies, such as those for survivors of domestic violence and runaway and homeless youth. Um, and one thing that people don't fully understand unless they really dig into the data is that even though we tend to think about single adults who are unsheltered, there are actually about 15,000 children who are in those main uh, municipal shelters on any given night. So this is really a crisis that's affecting not only single adults, but also members of families. And I think that uh, it really shows the severity of the affordable housing crisis in New York City and frankly nationwide and the need for multifaceted solutions to address this crisis. You know, part of the doing some research about today's conversation, I, I tried to go back and think about like when did homelessness become a issue as it is of today? And, you know, there have always been people who, as you mentioned, are unsheltered or housing insecure, sort of not having homes of their own, having to, you know, shelter with other people if they have, you know, the ability to do that. But there, there was a significant change in our recent history and when we got to the point where we are now. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I should say my organization focuses primarily on homelessness in New York City. And because New York City has a legal right to shelter, where the city is legally obligated to provide a bed and a shelter for anyone who needs it, we do actually have some, some decent data on the scale of homelessness and the increase over the past few decades. Now, nationally, it's a little bit harder to pin down the exact number of homeless people. Most estimates are that there are about half a million people who are who are homeless on any given night, but you know it's it's kind of a, a point in time count. It's not capturing the full scope. But in New York City, we know that um, we are currently facing the greatest rates of homelessness since the Great Depression of the 1930s, and in fact, modern mass homelessness began to emerge really in in earnest in the 1970s. So. You had a few factors that really um, contributed to this surge of homelessness and has created the situation that we all are sort of inured to in modern society today. So um, you had a, a, 
accelerating housing costs and a reduced supply of affordable housing, particularly for single adults who had often relied on single room occupancy housing as a as sort of a housing of last resort. It was cheap, it was affordable. And then due to regulatory changes and economic changes, that form of housing really disappeared for homeless New Yorker or for, for unstably housed New Yorkers who then subsequently became homeless. You also had a shift in the mental health care infrastructure where we had deinstitutionalization. So people were released from state psychiatric hospitals, which you know, the state psychiatric hospitals were not great. Um, they they certainly, you know, people shouldn't have been left to languish in those facilities. But when people were released into the community, they too often were not given the adequate housing and other supports that they needed to, to, to thrive. Um, and many of those people ended up homeless. And then in the 1980s, you saw an increase in family homelessness as well. And this was the direct result of um, the federal government's disinvestment in housing. We saw massive changes to the social safety net on a federal level in both the 1980s and the 1990s, at the same time that we saw housing prices increasing and a trend toward urbanization where more people were moving into cities. Um, so then we started seeing an increase, not just in homelessness among single adults, but also among families with young children. Um, and, and, we really haven't reached a point in in the federal dialogue where housing has um, has recovered from those cuts in the 1980s. And as a result, we are seeing surging homelessness around the United States. And as we saw during the pandemic, too many people were living paycheck to paycheck and are at imminent risk of homelessness um, and are really only in their housing now because of eviction moratoria and emergency rental arrears grants that they've been given. But I think the pandemic really highlighted how many people were just barely hanging on in the housing market nationwide and the need for more holistic long-term investments in affordable housing to actually prevent and reduce homelessness. So earlier in the show, we set the stage talking to someone, Chase Archer Evans, who has experienced homelessness off and on since he was a teenager, which I, I know through the coalition's reports for a number of people, that is a common thing. They experienced homelessness when the, with their family when they were young, and the same thing possibly here as in adulthood. But he talked about a number of the things that exist or barriers and fines and fees that exist that prevent people who are experiencing homelessness from getting additional access to services that they may qualify for, something as simple as an ID, social security card, because you need an address. And in some places you can't, if you don't have an address, where can you get, <laughs> where can you get those things? Does the coalition sort of have some of additional things that you can highlight from people, for folks like us who, you know, don't have this daily experience, don't really know anyone who experiences this on a daily basis? What are some of those other things that we take for granted that is difficult for people who are experiencing homelessness? Yeah. So you said a few really insightful things there. One is that we do often see intergenerational homelessness, right? Families where maybe the children were homeless with their parents. And then because they didn't have the foundation of stable housing, they then become homeless when they're adults. And I think that 
that is the direct consequence of this failure to invest in long-term permanent affordable housing on a scale to meet the need. Um, and then the other thing is that once someone becomes homeless, it's incredibly difficult to regain housing without assistance. So we have far too many bureaucratic barriers. Um, even though we know that thanks to decades worth of research, the most uh, impactful solution to the crisis of mass homelessness is housing first. And that's a philosophy that says that the first thing we should do is connect someone to stable housing and then wrap whatever support services they need around them. Because if you're sleeping on the streets or in a shelter, it's incredibly challenging to address your other uh, challenges that you might be facing. So it's incredibly difficult to deal with substance use disorder or to um, you know, access mental health treatment if you are unstably housed or on the streets. If you have permanent housing, it's much easier to, to, uh, to thrive and to access the care as well as achieve educational and employment goals that you might have because you don't have to worry about where you're sleeping at night. Um, another thing that I'll say is that too often our government bureaucracy enacts unnecessary barriers that prevent homeless or unstably housed people from accessing assistance. And part of that is an intentional way to sort of ration assistance, right? So instead of this housing first attitude of, okay, we're going to connect people to permanent housing as quickly as possible, we make people jump through so many hoops just to get to that point. And it's because we don't have enough funding from the federal government to actually create the amount of housing that is needed and to give people the, who are eligible the housing subsidies that they would need to afford rent on the private market. Um, so currently, only one out of every four eligible households nationwide receives a federal housing choice voucher subsidy. Um, we know that this is a proven method that helps people afford their rent. But we've chosen as a society to ration that assistance instead of making it an entitlement. And as a result, people have to go through uh, so much paperwork and years long wait lists, if the wait list is even open, just to access this, this basic human right of housing, um, to, to even get a shot to access housing. And it makes it really challenging for people. Um, also, as you mentioned, even things that many of us take for granted, like getting ID or uh, you know knowing where you're where to vote or when to vote or how to vote is really challenging if you don't have a permanent address. So homelessness is both the result of a variety of failed systems and then the uh, the continuation of homelessness is also um, you know a manifestation of those existing broken systems. This seems like, you know, as you mentioned it, you know, a lot, right? Like, you know, my first instinct into addressing homelessness is, you know, for a large portion of people, particularly if they are in shelters, if they have any number of services is, okay, let's, let's get them shelter. Like, you know, like we can worry about, you know, do they have, you know, access to employment or do they need, you know, other kind of services, as you mentioned, yes, we will get to all of that. But the first thing is, let's not have people, you know, living on the street, let's not have children and families not knowing, you know, where they will be able to lay their hair, where they can keep their things. I remember two instances. One, you know, the visceral reaction of seeing law enforcement in different cities 
dispose of people's things who are experiencing street homelessness and they go to break up what they consider to be encampments or people call in nuisance of, you know, this shopping cart or this thing or whatever. And so to see law enforcement just so casually dispose of things that they deem, deem as trash, but is other people's belongings. And I remember the visceral reaction I had to that. It was just like, just because you think it's trash, like what if that their person's documents are in there? What if their, you know, photo album from their family, you know, is in there and you just so callously, you know, threw it away. There ought to be a law about that, right? And then I think about instances where people who we deem are homeless or experiencing street homelessness, you know, be shooed away from places. And particularly in modern senses of creating benches with spikes so people can't lay down or, you know, doing things like that. And I have such a visceral reaction of, so I think for a lot of people, they just don't want to see homelessness, not necessarily that they actually want to address the sources and actually help the people. They just like, I don't want to see it. I don't want to see the shopping cart. I don't want to see them sleeping on the bench. I don't want to see them having to use the bathroom here. Just shoot them away, get them away, not really address some of the issues that can actually help a person. Yeah. I, I mean, your instincts are completely right. Um both in that the answer to homelessness is housing and also that far too much energy has been spent on, you know, trying to conceal or shift homelessness out of sight as opposed to addressing the root causes, right? It's much easier as a politician to send in the police to shove someone from one area to another and get them out of a certain neighborhood than it is to actually invest in the permanent affordable housing that will help that person get off of the street for good, right? I think we we often forget the humanity of our homeless neighbors and vilify them and see them as some sort of, you know, quote unquote, quality of life issue for the people who are fortunate enough to be stably housed instead of recognizing that homelessness is a humanitarian tragedy. And you should feel uncomfortable when you witness poverty and homelessness because in such a wealthy nation, it is completely inhumane and unacceptable that we fail to provide for a basic human right of housing for all residents of the United States. I mean, that is that is something we should not be accepting. And we shouldn't be accepting, you know, anti-homeless architecture as you as you discussed in terms of the spikes on benches and et cetera. Um, but too often uh, the response to homelessness across the country has been policing instead of housing, and that is completely misguided and counterproductive and will never actually address the root causes of this crisis. So what should people do now? Because I like giving action steps, right? So if you are a policymaker, if you are in elected office, be on a local level or state level, or even if the vice president is listening, right? <laughs> what, what things can be done now? What are some concrete steps that can be taken despite political will you know, despite whether or not, but just give people what are some action steps that should happen that we should demand to address homelessness overall? Yeah. So for the first time in a while, I actually have some sense of hope 
that the federal government might make historic investments in housing. So in the Build Back Better Act, there is currently a proposal for about $330 billion over 10 years to invest in things like uh, rental assistance and um, public housing, which is deteriorating across the United States due to defunding, and in uh, resources that would help governments build more permanent housing. Um, and there's a very real risk right now that as the top line number of the Build Back Better Act is negotiated, that those housing investments that are so desperately needed across the country might end up on the cutting room floor. And we can't let that happen. We are so close to transformative investments in housing that would really undo that disinvestment that we've had for decades and help tens of thousands of people in New York City alone access permanent affordable housing. We can't let that end up cut from the final bill. So I would encourage everyone to contact their senators and representatives and say that housing is infrastructure and housing is such an essential part of all of these other social goals that we have, that we really need to maintain these robust investments in, in you know, $90 billion in rental assistance, $80 billion in public housing, and a little under $40 billion in the housing trust fund. Those things need to be maintained. And I'm worried that if we don't uh, reach out to our representatives now with that mission, that uh, that it, it might just get left by the wayside and we will have missed a really vital opportunity for those investments. Um, now on the state and local level, we also have a lot of work to do. So often the decisions about what type of housing is being built and where it's being built and what kind of rent regulations are in place and tenant protections, are decided at the state and local level. And too often, uh, politicians don't connect the dots between the housing crisis and the homelessness crisis. And I think it's incumbent upon constituents to ensure that when new housing is being built, that it is actually affordable to the people with the greatest needs. And that when resources are being spent, that we're actually investing in upstream prevention of homelessness by helping people maintain safe, stable housing instead of letting people live in precarious situations or become homeless. You know, um, I, I think it's, it's really important to acknowledge that because of systemic racism, the housing crisis is disproportionately felt by Black and Latinx households across the United States. In New York City alone, about 90% of the people in shelters are Black or, or, and Latinx, and that is not an accident or a coincidence, right? That is the result of deliberate racist housing policies and social social welfare policies over the course of you know the the entire history of the United States. And I think that we need to recognize that we can't have racial justice without housing justice, and we need to see these investments in permanent affordable housing as a way of making up for for systemic racism in our housing policies that have left far too many Black and Latinx Americans without the dignity of stable housing. Well, Jacqueline, thank you so very much for sharing this information. And, you know, there are some action steps to take here as we mark the World Homeless Day today. There, you know, I'm struck by, as you mentioned, like we have the ability for this not to be a problem, right? Like we have the ability in this country to ensure that everyone has shelter. We have the resources to do it. Quite often people, you know, 
are thinking about, you know, the deficit and talking about the country paying its bills. And it's just like, we never question, do we have enough money for a number of other things, be they wars, be they tax breaks for wealthy. Like we never question if we have the money to do it, we just spend it. Right. And so why not spend it on people and ensuring that people have shelter, that people are not exposed and that people can, you know, have uh, safe and stable lives. And the fact that we have the ability to do it and it doesn't cost as much as waging a war and yet we still refuse to do so is part of the reason why we uplift these conversations on the show. So Jacqueline, thank you so very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.